Welcome to Who Owns the Stars, a podcast dedicated to analyzing each episode of The Expanse through the lens of two slightly obsessive know-it-alls who were sitting around one day bullshitting, and one of them said, we should start a podcast. And then they laughed until somebody said, but what if we actually did? (laughs) And here we are. And here we are. I'm one of your hosts, Kat, and with me is Nina. Everybody, I am Nina. So let's talk about this show as we are talking about this show. Why are we called Who Owns the Stars? What are we all about? What's our deal? What are we doing here on this earth, in this existence? All right, so let's, I'll start. <laughs> yes, please answer the questions that you posed. So, we uh, we started this podcast because, like Kat said, we both are deeply in love with the show. It's, I think, t- combined, we've watched it 10 times-ish. That's a lot. It's a big number. But I'm just uh, going to go out on a limb and say that eight of them are Nina. That's all. Whoa. All right, everybody. That means I get to lead this charade. So we've we've watched combined. Let's not disaggregate. Combined, we've watched about 10 times. We really love this story. We really love what it's all about. And we feel like we have something to say. And even if we don't have something to say, we want people to listen to what we have to say anyway. And that's why we're here. Cat, my friend. What's up, buddy? Would you like to talk about why we are called Who Owns the Stars? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't because I feel like you summarize it better than I do. (laughs) All right. I'll take the reins. So the reason we came up with this name, we were really kicking kicking around a bunch of ideas, but it has a lot to do with the themes in The Expanse. And I feel like we haven't said The Expanse in like a minute. So just so you know, we're covering The Expanse. Uh, It has a lot to do with the way the show is set up, the way this world is set up. Who has power in this story? Who doesn't have power? And what it takes to get that power or to get that sense of autonomy? And and what property looks like under like super late stage capitalism <laughs> in space on steroids. And that's what it's all about. Uh, so that's why we're called Who Owns the Stars. I feel like the more we get into this uh, series... The more sense it'll make. The more sense it'll make, and the more we'll be able to really explain our thinking. Um, As for now, I just love rhetorical questions as titles, and I think that's my main reason that we've called it this. I mean, incidentally, the suggestion was, what if we called it Who Owns the Stars? And then it was like, nah. (laughs) And then it was like, but what if it was? I think that's how all of our great ideas come around. All right. So Pretty much. This episode and the next episode are going to be a little bit interesting. So we'll be covering the first two episodes. I mean, damn, I hope so. <laughs> we'll, be- <laughs> we'll be covering the first two episodes of The Expanse in this podcast episode. And then the next episode of the podcast, we'll be covering the next two episodes of The Expanse. So today is one and two. The next one is three and four. And then after that, it'll be normal. It'll be, uh, I forgot what comes after four. Then it's five. And then it's an episode for six and so on. Um, We did that because eh, this show can be a little slow in the beginning. And we want to keep it a little, we want to keep it a little fast paced. Um, There's a lot to talk about more than what actually happens, I think, for a little bit. 
Um, and that's my reasoning. And if anybody else doesn't like it, they must can send all of their complaints to Nina. Just contact me and I'll send you her personal email. Oh, no. Shall we start? <laughs> we shall. All righty. So to begin with, the first episode is called Dulcinea. Dulcinea. Or Dulcinea. It's Dulcinea. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> Great start, everybody. <laughs> Written by Mark Fergus and Hawk Osby. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing your very exotic name right. Mark and Hawk. Our man. Who also wrote for Iron Man. We stand. Directed by Terry McDonough. McDonough? McDonough? McDonough, I think. There we go. I don't, I don't think. Same team for episode two. And if you are reading along in the books that these two episodes kept cover chapters one through nine. So getting that background information out of the way, we move. But quick note, just some quick housekeeping. We have two promises here. Alex isn't a major character, so we're not going to spend too much time on him. If you're not sure why, go ahead and Google the actor who plays him. That's about the long short of that. And on God and my mother, you will never hear us attempt to do a Belter <laughs> accent. Please don't play this for my mother. <laughs> but to go on, to recap these two episodes, we open... You know what? I've been talking for a minute. Is okay if I do the recap, You Nina? absolutely have my full blessing. Please tell us Thank everything you, that happens. So, I mean, in hopefully a minute or less. <laughs> Mars is in, we open with a scrawl that explains that Mars is an independent military power. Inner planets depend on the resources of the asteroid belt, while belters live and work in space. In the belt, air and water are more precious than gold. That takes us to a young woman who's locked in a closet on a dark ship. Do they have closets in ships? Yeah. She's in a room, a small room. She's in a class. You forgot that all you. it takes is a spark. That's the hottest part of that speech. I'm so sorry. I can't believe this. <laughs> you know what? I think we've got to kick you out. All right. Nina, take it away. No, listen. What I did was that thing that, you know, I'm not going to say men, but, you know, people do when they don't want to do something. They just do it wrong the first time. So somebody oh. else takes over. All right, all right. No, but I do want to. I, I, I like. I kind of want to. Let's just let's just start here, everybody. I, I want to start with the scrolling text because I think it's so funny. I like. I anything that's like has to explain to you what's going on is like a funny concept to me. Even though I get it, it's like everybody joining has no idea like how the story works, whatever. Um, but the other thing is like even with the scrolling text the story is pretty intense and complex regardless Um, Mm -hmm. but I do like it because I look at it in order to see like what what do they emphasize and why so I like the end where it's like all it takes is a spark and then it goes to this woman because I I think it's fair to say that she is the spark and I'm handing it back to you very cleverly. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it that you handed it back to me where I left off. 
Um, so we start out with a young woman. She's injured. She's locked in a closet. She goes looking for survivors after escaping. She finds a nuclear reactor covered with a creepy, glowing blue substance that is consuming a whole human being. And then she screams and we're off to the races. <laughs> what? How did you feel with that intro? I love like prologue intros, I guess. I guess they're just called prologues. I think they're so fun. And like I'm always I know it's like such a trick, but I'm like always a sucker for them. No, honestly, because then you're sitting here wondering, like, when are we getting back to this? And starting out with this, you know, glowing blue stuff, I mean, is a promise that things are going to get weirder than they seem. Tells you what it's about. So I enjoy that. We go on to meet the crew of the Canterbury. Holden, Naomi, Shed, Alex, and Amos. We named some other people, but we don't get to you know. Yeah, I think we get to Miller first. Do we get to Miller? See, this well. whole episode is a blur. Everything happens at once. No, you know why I remember? Because uh, this is where we start off with the entire speech. Remember that guy? He like looks really yes, and he's like, "We were yes. slaves." And it's like, "All right, everybody, let's see, let's think about what we're saying." Uh, yes, the reincarnation of Malcolm X. <laughs> In the form of a guy and like a. I'm absolutely shirt. joking. I promise. <laughs> but yeah, I think we. I think we're we go to to series next. The way I'm, I I I only say this because I literally watched it 24 hours ago. She's forcing her father to watch yeah. it. She's literally tying him down and saying, "You don't have a choice but to watch two episodes a day, so we can get you ready in time for season five. You no, know, he was actually also very uh, confused by it, and I think. Like, how are you when you first watched these episodes? Like, did it? I mean, I was was trying to keep track. What I also did was read, like, recaps as I watched, just in case there was anything that I was confused about. Mm -hmm. What I can say is when I watched it with my mom, she was really just, like, vibing until, you know, (laughs) episode seven or eight, where she was like, how do these pieces fit together? Yeah. No, that was, that's me. I, you're like, I've paid attention to every detail. And I'm like, I watched it. And if something stuck out, I remembered it. If it didn't, I was just waiting for someone to tell me what was happening. I really wasn't like worried about putting the pieces together. But now, like when you watch it again and again, you're like, there are a lot of pieces. Oh, and like keeping track of the sequence of everything. As the season goes on, I think is the most complicated part mm-hmm. because you're dealing with some stuff that happened like immediately prior to the start of the series, mm-hmm. which makes it a little more. Ugh. But anyway, back to Miller. Why don't you tell us about Miller? Back to Miller. So Josephus Miller <laughs> is a cop on Ceres Station who's been saddled with a partner from Earth. Employed by the Star Helix Corp. So, important to note, Star Helix is owned by Earth, while Ceres is like one of the most populated cities in the belt. He's a corrupt cop. He takes bribes and punishes the same people bribing him. And anyone who has watched Person of Interest would probably think of Detective Fusco here. Hint, hint. But moving on. So Nina had mentioned this activist character, 
who uh oh i have did i did you activate a speech maker <laughs> so malcolm x calls <laughs> miller a well walla oh oh yeah. <laughs> Bitch, you're not taking this series. I need you to tighten up. I'm up. I'm ready. I'm here. I'm here. I'm up. I'm paying attention. Oh, I didn't know. We. I mean, you. You gave the pretty succinct summary, but yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess should we? Oh, I mean, I can go on. I can finish the recap fully if you'd like. No, you may not. You tagged me in. It's over. Okay. Damn. Girl, Um. go pick up the baton. (laughs) Um, the I, I don't think we ever get a name for like the guy who's giving a speech. No, they um, just call him something like Tall Belter. Gaunt Belter. Yeah. He is pretty gaunt. Um, yeah, he has this great line. It's one of my it's literally, I think, my favorite intro uh for the character for Miller, because he says the Belter, he calls out to Miller because Miller's the cop, so he's sort of policing his own people, and, and he says, When the revolution comes, what side will you be on? Exactly. Um and Miller's like, yeah, I'll know. Um, and and then he calls him. The spoiler well is he won't. Oh, <laughs> uh, he call- <laughs> he calls him a a, a well walla, which is one of the only times I'll like I'll I'll say anything in a Belter language. Um, you can get but- away with it as long as you don't put an accent on it. Well. Well, the walla part, part I have to. Um, that's the other thing. This is interesting. Watching with my parents, what they've noticed, like they picked up on all the, how very um, South Asian a lot of like the intro to the Belters is, which I didn't realize until I was watching it with them. Um, but you have like this word, well walla, which is a mix of the word well and the Hindi word walla. Um, Thank you. Which is like, I, <laughs> you know, not everybody has, has that understanding but um you have that and then you have like i think a little bit later we'll hear a different types of music that sound very like south asian hair uh inherited um yeah go ahead talk about the music and while (laughs) no while we're on that topic i think what's interesting is like you know the fact that my parents picked up on that i think in general when i when i think about like sci-fi worlds and like, you know, there's always like a bar or something and there's always people hanging out and they always use that. They always use some setting to give you a sense of like, what's the culture like at that time? Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've ever watched anything where it feels like there's a culture, basically, like where some sort of culture has still persisted. And I think that's one of the things that sticks out if you're watching it for the first time or if you're watching it again I think it's one of the things that sticks out when they introduce the concept of belters and the belt. It's like there is a culture among these people and it derives from what culture we have now. No, I appreciate that too. Cause in my experience, sci-fi tends to be that like once we get to let's say a hundred years in the future, it's very much like, it looks like what we have today, but there's random Chinese influences and that's about oh, it. Oh Yeah. Or, or uh, I would say Japanese, maybe, because the whole futuristic Tokyo exactly. thing. Yeah. But yeah. But here it feels like they put a little more care into thinking, how does culture kind of go into a blender in the future? And how can we actually portray that? And I think we're going to have more yeah. discussion about how they portray culture 
a little later, but for now, it's a good intro. Yeah. But So what's next with Miller? What is next with Miller? Well, (laughs) (laughs) Miller, I mean, he kind of just walks around a lot being depressed. (laughs) So early on, we're like, this man is suffering. He is. Yeah. yeah. He's not the happiest in the world. He's, I would really, I really see him as like, because his whole partner, right? And I know you're gonna you're gonna talk a little bit about the how the show diverges from the books, but the partner that he has, um, I don't remember the first name, but they introduce him as Havelock. I think it's Dimitri. Is like, oh, Dimitri Havelock. Uh, him and Miller are really like how the audience enters the world, and so Havelock is really only there. There's literally like scenes of just exposition mm-hmm. of Miller being like, "This is how Belters are," and like. You know, he talks essentially talks about things that like nobody would ever have in a real conversation with a person, just so that we understand like what's going on. Um, you're right. I really think he just walks around, and there's like a little bit of like who he is as a character, but it's really just the beginnings for him. You know, it's very um, much like, you know, he's your hard boiled detective, and he's morally gray, but a very dark gray, and then you see him consider do i have to be this person Ooh. and occasionally he makes the decision not to be but for him i mean sure (laughs) (laughs) we're only on episode one um do you have any thoughts you want to go into on miller i know i do i do I think that it's important to talk about what Wellwalla means. Um, Havelock mm-hmm. asked him to define it, and he says it means traitor to my people. And he looks, mm-hmm. a, to me, he looks a little hurt when he says it. But it's mm-hmm. also clearly not the first time that he's heard it. And for anyone who doesn't really understand like why they may refer to him that way, there is a quote from later on in the show. Don't Google it. there is a quote from later on in the show you think because you're a judge you can't be a prisoner oh we're already going there we are we have to come out the gate with it girl (laughs) and i think that that is extremely relevant to understanding who miller is as a person but also his place among belters Because he is someone who's grown up in the belt, shaped by it, but he still chose to work for an earth corporation that is actively both exploiting and persecuting other belters. So that is where Wellwalla comes from and why it's attached to him as a character. Um, I also think Miller is an example, and I want to set this up now because we're going to continue to discuss it throughout the season. He's okay. really an example of unsuccessful class mobility mm. while simultaneously resenting the very people that he wants to be able to join. So we see him get in, he's given a case, which is a, what they call a kidnap job, where he's supposed to track down this rich earther girl who is apparently on series for a good time, but her parents want her back home. And we'll see him become increasingly attached to Julie, and later we'll talk about why. 
he becomes attached to her, but it's very much related to his desire for class mobility and the fact that he never really achieves it. And- yeah, I I think that's what. Oh no! Nope. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I think what that's kind of what when I think about Miller, what makes him so interesting is how he's such a um, such like a push and pull kind of character. He says certain things, but he does other things. So like exactly what you're saying. I think one of the great examples in this episode is um, you have this established uh, idea that Miller is somewhat of a traitor. So maybe he's not uh, loyal to the Belter identity. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're watching this for the first time, what you're getting a sense of is that these people who live in the asteroid belt hold a lot of resentment towards the two nations that control their resources, which is Earth and Mars. And so Miller is this interesting, Miller is the first belter that we meet and the lead belter, I would say, for this season mm-hmm. that gives us a sense of like what one person who lives in the asteroid belt might feel like. And the cool thing about Miller is that he's not really cleanly in this box. He's not, excuse me, he's not um, completely loyal to Earth. And you could think of it as like being a loyalist versus like an independent, mm-hmm. I guess. Like he's not completely loyal to Earth or Mars, which govern the belt, but he's not completely loyal to um, the the people who maybe want a more independent state of belt cities. And so, and I think a lot only- of that comes from his cynicism. Like he genuinely just doesn't believe in anything or anyone. So he's yeah. not invested in, you know, building a new world, a new independent nation. And there's also this element of like disdain that he has for his own people. Yeah, yeah. He's I think the example I love the most is his fashion and. Uh, Havelock points this out in the beginning. He says, you dress like an earther. Um, and then he also points out his hat. And I think his hat is like the the big symbol here. Mm-hmm. So Miller wears his hat and he jokes that it's to keep the rain off of his head um, in this episode. And the punchline is that like Ceres doesn't have rain. Nowhere in the belt is there rain because there's no atmosphere because they live in space, unlike Earth um, and to a lesser extent Mars. Right. Um, and the the sad part is that as much as he jokes about it he still wears the hat he still dresses like an earther he still he says one thing he does another and that is really a theme that this season really unpacks and i think is what makes him such an interesting character and like just such an interesting intro into the world like already somebody who's not an easy template or or not somebody that you can pinpoint to one type of character he's just like you can't figure out where he is yet. You can't figure out how he feels about things yet. Exactly. But you get a sense of like where he might go. I actually want to pick up on your point about keeping the rain off his head because in movies and tell in media, we tend to use somebody getting rained on as like a sign of their misery in that moment. They're not just miserable because, you know, they're getting rained on. It's because so much is happening in their life and the rain is like a symbol of, you know, shit's just pouring down on them. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we're looking at the hat as his aspiration to be an earther or at least have a life better than what he does have, 
then that hat also serves as like that metaphorical protection against his shitty life. Wow, but, that's you know. very deep. Thank you. I try, girl. I try. That's what I go to school for. <laughs> that's what I got in. That's, that's what my debt is what for. What you pay them the big bucks for. Exactly. Yeah. Um, any In this episode, do we have any other lingering thoughts about Miller, about what he does in this episode? Um, or do we want to move on? I do want to quickly note Miller says there's no laws on series, just cops. Ooh, yeah, I love that line. Ooh, because it really relates back to why the inners, which is what they call um, Martians and Earthers, why they wouldn't want the belt to unify and be recognized as a separate entity. Because being able to make their own laws, govern themselves, police themselves, gives them a measure of control, which obviously you wouldn't want the people who you profit off of to have. And- I love how we said this show is for people who, like, you know, may have never watched it before and were, like, hardly in. And now we're, like, talking about the deep politics <laughs> of being a citizen of the belt in the 23rd century. Honestly, we're breaking it down it- for you. Like, your first time watching experience is richer because of us. There is a lot that, like, I just didn't pay attention to on my first watch. And I think this is a perfect example mm-hmm. of what I missed. But there is also the point about, you know, cops being explicitly corporate owned and protecting the assets of wealthy people, which isn't familiar to anyone. So (laughs) I think in this this show does a really interesting job of like what I like about this show is that it's technically near future. I mean, it's 100 years. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call it that near, but it's near enough that like structures institutions still look the same and so i i I like that they have this emphasis on how corporate entities can play a larger role in in governing and it's interesting because there was a recent article i was reading i sound like i sound like my parents i was reading an article online like i can't verify um no but I think it was like, you know, all this stuff about Elon Musk and all these guys who want to go to space. And I remember there was this discussion about like what kind of laws apply when you go to space. Who gets to who who owns the stars? Oh, we connected it. Our minds. (laughs) I didn't plan that. Um. Yeah, you know, like what? What kind of who? I can't, I can't think of a different phrase. See, you know, like, she's so what, caught up in her own glory right now. She's doing a mental victory lap. I gotta like bask in it. It's it's like what happens when you go to space and you know plant the flag on the first planet or build the first space station that civilians can live in. Like, which nations get to preside over it? Do we? have do we use our united nations in the same way that the expanse has implied that the united nations now controls earth as a whole is that what happens or is it a case where it's you know whoever gets there first kind of determines the laws on their own which is i think how the corporate part comes into it right like in this um uh star helix right so Mm -hmm. star helix is, is is the name of the organization of cops on series station um they're corporate in that they have shareholders. They're beholden to those people. Um, 
but at the same time, there's this idea that they're Earth-owned yeah. versus being Belter-owned or versus being Mars-owned. And thinking about how do public and private interests intertwine and, like, determine how, like, policy gets made and all those kinds of things. I Like, it's just, the more I think about it, it's, it's such an interesting, like, choice of how to like think about the world in the future mm. which is what these authors did is like think about it i think from like a kind of a corporate lens not that not the only way but but i i think no it's i very understand like it's very much it. a representation of the a, the form of capitalism that we recognize today and then how it just kind of strengthens itself in yeah. the future which is really depressing <laughs> You know, the way, like, I'm even reflecting on the way I said strengthens itself, like it's, you know, its own living entity <laughs> as opposed right. to people. It reaches out. Um, I do not have any thoughts. I don't think I, I have, have any more thoughts. I have one last on point. I have one last Please. point. Um, do go on. The gaunt belter who, mm. I mean, very heavy handedly says, look in the mirror. Call yourself a slave, which <laughs> took me out. Um, I understand what they're trying to communicate, but you know that pulled me out for a second. At it's some, like you're, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't think I have anything to say that would contribute anything. To this. I mean, it's it is what it is. I understand what they were trying to do. We can discuss it at a later point. <laughs> So let's go to the Canterbury. Well, hold on. <laughs> he, he also he says, what else you have to say about Miller? He also says, in their eyes, we're not even human anymore, which becomes Ooh, another important, yeah. you know, way of explaining how belters are, they use physical othering to, you know, demean belters and treat them as less than, as a justification of them, like, not being human anymore. Yeah. Which sounds familiar. And the whole sort of hypocrisy of that. <laughs> yeah. The whole hypocrisy of that is that the concept of belters, where they came from, is from Earth, from Mars, from, you know, humans, the same species of people. Um, it's just that because of their environment, because of their atmosphere, because of their values that they had to create and iterate on, they've just grown up differently right. and that's all that really makes them different there is no difference i guess in value of their life exactly except unless you're an earther determining that well um now we can move on to the canterbury let's this is fun canterbury is fun it is no i even like the intro to it where i mean you mentioned they use this like kind of hindi influenced music yeah they use kind of a they use a beat so they use so if you recognize the song they to intro us to the canterbury so quick summary but cat you can give the full summary but um we're on the canterbury which is a ship in space they mine ice that's pretty much it um but when they intro you to it they use a song called tighten up by the black keys i'm actually a big black keys fan really Um, but it's re-record. Yeah, I love the whole. I, it's very basic, but I like love that whole style of music. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they use that song, and then what they've actually done is they re-recorded it. And so 
first of all, the person who's singing it is singing with Belcher lyrics. And then the actual production of the song has, I I recognize it as like, it kind of sounded like a Bungara beat. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a very specific, again, it's just like a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, again, just an interesting and a nice touch to like, how does this world evolve, but how does it keep certain things the same? How does certain culture persist? Yeah. And I just want Nina's, you know, dancing around it. But I'm going to say I loved it <laughs> from day one. She's the one who said she didn't like it. <laughs> Me? Hold on, everybody. What's going on here? Wait, am I looking I on you right now? <laughs> You know what? I'm going to let you slide because we'll fight later anyway. Oh, most definitely. And so I'm going to I'm going to give you a quick win now. Um I won't hold it against you if you are I don't know if you're lying because I don't remember. She knows that but... she can't find. She's not sure if the text exists um exists or not. <laughs> so she's not going to tell me my... oh, right. I'm lying. I'm saving my energy for season 2. That's what I'll say. Right, on to the recap. You know, we meet Holden, Naomi, Shed, Alex, Amos. They're the ones that matter. They, (laughs) along with their crew, receive a distress signal. Most of them decide to ignore it. Holden runs behind everybody's back, logs it secretly, and then plays dumb when everybody says, who did it? And he and the characters that we determined are important go out on a separate little shuttle to respond to the distress signal, realize it was deliberately shut down and then abandoned. Then they realize there's a stealth ship that's watching them. The stealth ship then explodes the can't killing like a hundred or so people. But not our yeah, main characters. Because really <laughs> of their plot armor. <laughs> exactly. But you know, what did we think of the character intros? So for me, and this is coming, having watched season one like three times now, at least. I did not like Holden the first time I watched because I thought he was just going to be our standard like male lead Every that man. I don't care about. Exactly. <laughs> Um, in hindsight, he's a little more endearing in the way that he interacts with the crew. Um, his decision to log the call, I think, ultimately is a good one. Because it's really like, come on, are we really going to just leave people out here to die in space? Right. And that's what Ade says, your favorite. <sighs> um, quick note, <laughs> Ade was Nigerian in the book. She's not Nigerian here, so that is not my sister. <laughs> so, but she dies. So she does die, and they know that I would have been on their heads if they killed the Nigerian <laughs> girl. Off jump, they knew they didn't want that smoke, you know. <laughs> so you know, we accept it. The woman dies, but this time it's it's sad, but not too sad. It's Wendy Williams. Aw. <laughs> exactly. And then moving swiftly on. Yeah, tell me what you think about Holden and, and them. Um, Naomi, moving on. I love her. I love Ooh. that she is sometimes a little mean, but generally just kind of not nice. 
There is yeah. this element of barely contained disdain whenever she's interacting with Holden, which I enjoyed. I did think it was interesting that they made sure to signify that like she is a belter because she uses the Creole just for a moment. Mm-hmm. Even though she was only talking to Earthers, which I think is an interesting moment that she still does it when she's talking to Earthers, even though she can clearly... You know, not let's not say pass, but she doesn't have to. It also never yeah. happens again, so I think it was really just to show us she's a belter. I think a lot of the there's a lot of choices in the pilot that are more about like signaling to the audience certain things mm-hmm. than like maybe establishing a character pattern. Right. But you know, now as I'm like listening to you talk about her, it's interesting because Naomi and Miller are really the only, I think the only main Belcher perspectives that we get. Mm. Well, the lead ones, right. I would say. Especially that we, for that we get one. in this season. Yeah. And and so that's interesting and it's interesting to think about them compared to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both kind of shifty, I would say, <laughs> actually, uh, now that I think about it. A little bit. But um, what's, what's great about Naomi, and like, I, I love her. I mean, we will, you will hear more than enough times how much we love Naomi. But um, what I think shows, not necessarily in this episode, but more in the second episode, um, and we can talk about that, obviously, she's... There's this really clear line that, like, yeah, you're right. She has this disdain. She's a little mean, but she's a very specific personality. Mm-hmm. Like, she's not the antagonist. No. She's not Holden's number one enemy. She's just a person with a very specific viewpoint. And we don't know why she feels that way. We don't know why she acts in certain ways. But this is the this is the person that we get. And I I love that the show like really strikes that balance because it could easily you know go in the direction of like her being this person that everybody roots against Mm -hmm. and i don't need to go and how stereotypes work but the show i think for me personally i feel like the show is is writes her well Mm -hmm. and i think that's because the show in general is invested in all of the characters being uh having their own points of view and being having that influence yes and taking the time to show those layers. Because mm-hmm. we don't learn anything about anybody for a while. Girl, a good so... minute. <laughs> so I just want to stand Naomi for a second. And, you know, and we love that. Uh, moving on. Amos is Naomi's sidekick. So, you know, we appreciate that. I love that he refers to Naomi as the boss, even in front of Holden, who's higher ranked than she is. Yeah. Um, Shed, it is nice to know you can still score drugs in space. (laughs) So things, some things never change. I would actually watch like the potential space sitcom that this could be a pilot for, but that's not the direction we choose to go. Quickly, everybody on the can. I mean, you. No, go ahead. Oh, no, go. I mean, I was moving uh, on to I another was... character, so. Oh, okay. What it reminded me of is the space, everybody on the ship, it reminds me of only because you've dragged me into it, but because I've started, well, started and then I've stopped watching um, Star Trek Discovery. Like, that's mm-hmm. the energy I get. It's honestly Everybody's okay like, that out. you stopped because I promised you like a <laughs> month ago that I was going to start The 100 and I have not. <laughs> so that's called self-accountability, ladies. 
don't need to watch that. Or, yeah. Anyway, moving on. But um, quick, do we want to quickly talk about the XO and his breakdown? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you such a great fucking scene. Um, That's definitely like a scene by scene breakdown. The contrast with him, between like him craving that natural organic feel of dirt and grass versus the image of what I'm pretty sure is Jupiter through a window. Mm-hmm. And then he smashes it. It just turns out to be a screen. It really brings home just how sterile it must feel to live in space. Yeah, it's so sad. And I like if you watch it, there's a lot of shots focusing on his feet, mm-hmm. like like stepping through the the dirt. And like, I, I think on a first watch, it's easy to wa- see him as somebody who's just like, oh, that guy's like mm-hmm. crazy, whatever. And then the more you watch it, if you like again, it's just so like you really feel for him. Right. Like he's not someone not everybody can survive in such high stakes situations mm-hmm. and he's one of those people and um and it and it also is kind yeah, of I, signals we'll see other characters crave like what it's like to just be on a planet with you know a whole ecosystem yeah and i think that his scene kind of signals that early on and then he has the best line uh, maybe in the entire show maybe in just the season. i agree i mean it's it's a t- it's a top five line. Um, he says we. I forgot. No, he says he says we make it all this way so far out into the darkness. Why couldn't we have brought more light? It's so tragic. And it wasn't until yeah, and it wasn't actually until my most recent few watches that I understood that by light he. I think he actually meant like like sunlight, like for his plants that mm-hmm. he's like knee deep <laughs> in. Um, it's like I missed the obvious interpretation and I went straight to like the metaphysical one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it's just such like a sad, it's a very, it's almost a vague line out of context, but it's, it's just so sad and it's s- still a pervasive question. Like even now as we, oh my God, as we approach our fifth season, ugh, um, it's, it's still there. Like why, why can't we do these things? Why can't we, um, try something else, rather. Yep. But that basically sums up what happens on the camp. Mm-hmm. And quickly, we can stop in on Earth, where not much happens. We meet Christian mm-hmm. Avasarala, played by... I'm not going to fuck her name up. Nina, hit it. (laughs) Shore Agdashlu. She's like a really famous Persian actress. She is. Which is kind of cool. That must have brought like a lot of star power to the show when she got casted. So that's nice. And Gravitas. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. (laughs) I think that's, I mean, it's a fancy word anyway. It is. Any way you pronounce it. Correct. I write it in papers. I just don't say it out loud. Anyway, Christian Abbasarala. She is the third most powerful person on Earth, which is governed by the UN. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see her torture a belter who may or may not be part of the OPA, which is the Outer Planet Alliance, which is basically a group of belters who would like to liberate the belt. Yes. I mean, Any thoughts? I think it is interesting that this far that that far into the future we're still continuing to torture prisoners 
And the again, once the primary concern remains, what if people find out and not like the inhumanity what of doing that? Doing? Yeah. What I think is so interesting is, you know, I was talking about points of culture, like and how it, you know, continues as we go into the future. And I think Christian is a really interesting, like, conflict of that because when you meet her, um, I think the first time you actually see her on screen is like on a TV screen because she's like in a, in a meeting and she's being broadcasted, whatever. But the first time you meet her is in her house and she's like putting on jewelry um, and she's wearing very what I would like describe as very like traditional clothing. Mm-hmm. And um, it's clearly as, expensive. Think, yes, it's very expensive. And it's so I don't know if it was ever confirmed like what's her specific like ethnicity or or her heritage but like I again I get the sense it's South Asian in some context and so this is like the third or fourth time we're seeing like these elements of culture that pervades at the same time like you're saying it's very wealthy and she's you know when she goes to um interrogate that belter it's it becomes like armor but in a bad way Mm -hmm. like you see this man who's half who's practically naked being dragged to the ground and she's in there and and the lighting this is the i think this is one of the few times the lighting really works in the show's favor in the first season um it's very washed out it's very stark it's bleak and suddenly her you know beautiful adornment and everything she's wearing suddenly is like almost gaudy and mm-hmm. it's it's almost rubbing in his face the fact that she's fully clothed the fact that it's very rich material um it's really like i think demonstrates power and the power differentials that exist between them not only just in that scene but just as an earther and a belter yeah and like as we're talking about it it suddenly reminds me of what we just said with miller and his fashion like miller's fashion is a contradiction because he dresses like an earther but he is a belter and so he constantly is like sort of as we'll see through the season miller is this kind of person who aims for this dream of becoming an earther but that's not something he'll ever be able to achieve whereas krishna Vasarala, her fashion is a contradiction because if you think about it in sort of current times being able to wear your traditional dress in certain like societies around the world is is almost seen as like reclaiming your culture mm-hmm. depending on the society you grow up in but at the same time what she's wearing is so symbolic of the wealth that she has and the power that she has and the way that she's using that power in a bad way um that it's another contradiction and she's an earther she's not she she has no desire to be a belter and so maybe if miller dresses like what he wants to be Christian is almost dressing to imply what she doesn't want to be. Mm-hmm. You know, she specifically wears what she wears, both uh, as someone who celebrates her heritage, but also someone who lets you know, like, that, like who I am exactly. and like, what I can do. And there is, the, no, I'm not going to say a tendency but there is this idea perception that like female politicians who I'll never go up for but um are expected to dress in a more masculine way or at least you know wearing the more traditional suits yeah and she consciously seems to shy away from that because when you see her later on 
she's usually wearing the brightest colors in the room, jewelry. Like she stands out from everybody else. Yes. And I think it also plays into her, the idea of her being this like woman, not necessarily, not, not only a woman, but an older woman, making it easier for you to underestimate her because she's distracting you with all this bright color. Yeah. And meanwhile, you know, she's torturing people in an underground black box. <laughs> yeah, like illegally too, I think they say. Yes. But But we like her. We like her as a as a character, <laughs> not as a not as a in terms of what she's doing. You know, um I know that a friend a friend, if she's listening right now, we both know her. She's going, who likes her? <laughs> <laughs> We means two. (laughs) And that, you know, basically covers the main stories of episode one. Yeah. Do you have any uh, thoughts about it overall? I think that, honestly, I feel like it's a solid pilot. However, Mm -hmm. I also realize that my feelings about it are being colored because I understand what's being set up for the future. And we have a lot of like character context for it. So, you know, mileage yeah, may vary. I, there's, I think, a lot in this episode that can turn people off, but there's also a lot that like does set it apart a little bit. Like, you watch it and it's, I think it's easy to be like, oh, this is another like future society. Things are gritty. Things, you know, people still kill each other. Um, how do they survive and, you know, do the right thing? But I, as the next few episodes will show, I think the strength of the show is how it's balancing these different types of stories at once. So, you know, on one hand, you've got Miller and he's going to um, start embarking on this detective journey. Um, Then Holden and his crew, who after we end episode one, have just witnessed the Canterbury, their sort of parent ship being blown up and all of their friends dead you've got them sort of on a more adventure style story and and trying to put the pieces together of what just happened to them and and like what people are going to do about it if any justice is going to be served Mm -hmm. and then you have avasarala krishna avasarala in the background because she doesn't feature heavily in this season because she actually does not exist in book one so yes. all of Avasarala's scenes in season one are like completely original to the show, which is yeah. why they seem so, so skinny sometimes. <laughs> she really is in the background, and but I I I'm so glad that they added. I definitely like. Uh, listen, I'll be honest. If it was just Holden and Miller's story, I don't know how excited I would have been, mm-hmm. especially because like that's a lot of men, and there is one woman in that cast. Yep, you know what I mean. Uh, Absolutely, that's yeah. hard to watch. Um, but I think adding Avasarala not only a adds another woman to the cast, which is really nice, but b adds a different, a third type of story. So Miller's, uh, you know, cyber noir, I think is what they would call mm-hmm. it, Holden and Cruz sort of action adventure style, and then Avasarala's like political story of like what's happening on the highest level, you know, and and how do these three stories tie together? And I think that's 
the strength of this show in this first season and how it distinguishes itself. It really, this first season is, is it's more than just like people like learning how to survive in space or whatever. Like there really is a much bigger story at hand. Um, and I don't know if that comes across in the first episode, but I, it really unfolds in a really interesting way. I think I'm just selling the show now, so I'm going to stop. No, but I think that is a great note to actually end episode one on, you know, as far, you know, our deep thoughts. Should we move on to number two? We sure should. Um, The second episode is called The Great moment to have notes open wouldn't it the second episode oh i have mine is called- <laughs> I should mean, i do it i have it open now girl so you know at, you come I'll at go. the 11th hour <laughs> uh the second episode is called the big empty um which is about space and the big empty because this episode is really I think there's a the reason we kind of put these two episodes together is they really play with each other. So mm-hmm. this first episode was like overwhelming. Here are all the three different worlds you're going to be in. And, and here's everything about society in the 23rd century. And here are all these things that are happening. And the second episode is like, you know, the, the whole system shuts down and it's like, let's just stay in the same place for 45 minutes. Um, so why don't you tell us what happens in this episode? So I think the like dominant storyline in this episode is really about the aftermath of the Canterbury, which is true for actually each storyline, but we spend a lot of time with the crew. And we watch them argue, problem solve, uh, work as a team, and then also show us why they probably shouldn't be a team. <laughs> <laughs> And then Holden goes ahead and accuses the Martian military of destroying the Cant, essentially starting a war. What a great way to end the episode, by the way. I Every time I watch it, I just laugh out loud. <laughs> and then the Martian military comes and picks them up. So that's fun. You reap what you sow, man. And Should we start with the the crew let's go for it um i think it's really interesting that this episode starts out with what is honestly like the brightest lit scene that we see in space for both Mm. the show and this season and i think that happens because it's an idealized memory of him and his girlfriend i'm not saying her name (laughs) so (laughs) But I really liked that as an opener. And it's very brief. And then we go back to Holden pretty much having the beginning of what is an episode long panic attack. Oh, yeah. Poor thing. But everybody else is concerned about staying alive. So he tries to chase the stealth ship with on a ship with no weapons. Mm-hmm. That is what has been established is a piece of junk and everybody's like oh no girl you're not getting me killed today (laughs) Uh, but at some point during that argument amos asks him because holden tries to pull rank and is like i gave an order 
and Amos asked yeah. him, you think rank matters now? And that's actually one of my favorite Amos quotes and a quote that I think is also kind of sets the tone for the show. Because, you know, authority is given to people, but it's also easily lost depending on the environment. So who has the right to give orders and why? Yeah. And in that moment, we also see Naomi take charge and goes ahead and she shuts the drive down so they can't chase the ship. And we've talked about this moment <laughs> because she sh- have. she shuts the drive down. Holden kind of just sits there for a beat, almost like shaking with rage. Yeah. And then he literally bares his teeth like an animal. He yells so much. So much. Girl. Like, calm down, man. <laughs> Don't calm. I mean, it's like a terrible situation. But you like- know, I would never want to be in it, but... I think it it's also tells you about how Holden reacts to stress and he's someone who explodes, you know, he has to just get all of his stress out where other people seem to, like Naomi and Amos, kind of tamp theirs down so then they can survive yeah. the moment. Yeah. But- I think what's so interesting about Holden in this episode is like, as the episode plays out, I think you get to see different sides of him. Mm-hmm. So, like, in that first 10 minutes, he's freaking out. I mean, he's really played as, like, the guy who wants to be the naive, like, go-get-justice mm-hmm. person. And everybody else around him is like, this is the real world. We can't just go after a ship that blew up our friends. Um, and you really, like, you know, you're not necessarily rooting for Holden. Um, even though, you know, he has the right intentions. Right. But then... What I like as the episode goes on, there's an there's a moment that sticks out to me um, where Shed has a panic attack mm-hmm. and he's like freaking. Out. And I love the way they play it, but um, what stuck out to me is is Holden is sort of the first one to get to him and then calms him down. And I like as much as the first ten minutes sort of showed his flaws, I think that sequence kind of showed his strengths. Mm-hmm. Like nobody else in the crew was gonna go calm Shed down. They, if Holden wasn't there, they probably were just gonna, you know, expect him to deal with it, right. or you know, someone be like, "Shut Shed up" or whatever. But Holden is the one who goes over and is like, "Hey, I see, like, I see what's happening. Like, we're gonna get through this." He really like takes the lead, mm-hmm. and so I, I. Again, a testament to the show's writing that they'll let the characters be wrong and be stupid. And then they'll show that they're not like someone you would... There's nobody really on this show that I'm ever like... You know, in terms of protagonists, there's nobody I'm really like, oh, I hate this person because they are always X, Y, Z. It's like they usually have enough complexity that I I can root for them when I want to root for them. And then I can understand what they're doing when I don't agree with them. And we love that. (laughs) Right. Like you said, though, Holden does show more range in his personality in these first few episodes. We see him, like you said, we see him calm shed down. Um, I do want to return to that, like, moment of rage that he has. Because it also tells us about who Naomi is as a person. Because he really, like, he steps into her space in a very aggressive way. And it, when I watched it, 
as we were preparing for this podcast, um, I remembered this interview where Dominique mentioned that one of Naomi's most prominent traits is her stillness. And in that moment, she does not, she flinches a little bit, but where other people may like step back and try and put some distance between her and Holden, she's very visibly determined to stand her ground. And I think it's a nice, like quick visual way of showing us that this is someone who has seen things, who has dealt with, you know, maybe aggressive people. And it's not the first time that Mm -hmm. she's been in a similar situation. And she knows how to handle it. These characters are really like, by the time you meet them, they're not blank slates, which I Mm -hmm. appreciate. Except, you know, maybe Holden a little bit, but the rest of them are are really like, they have their own lives that we don't know anything about. Exactly. Um, this also we also learn more about like how Amos and Naomi relate in this episode because after Ooh, Holden yeah. walks away from her in that same scene she and Amos share this long look which he initiates and clearly Amos you know recognized the potential for violence in that moment but when their eyes do meet like whatever communication that they have it results in this shift where, you know, Amos is the one who is more verbally opposing Holden, where Naomi was the one primarily doing it before. I mean, he also casually threatens to kill Holden, but. <laughs> <laughs> I so, I mean, it's a hint. It's like, listen, what I just saw back there, it ain't never going to happen again. <laughs> I tell you that. That was so, that is such a scary scene. That's really like Amos doesn't really get um like any dot like any meaningful dialogue I would say until this episode and then the first thing you essentially hear from him is that I don't have the capacity to determine like what is right or wrong and so if you cross me or the people that I follow you will be off this ship in an instant and (laughs) he just says it so casually and then I love the way he ends because this is when him and Holden are fixing um, yeah, they go the out to like fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love the way he ends it because um, he's like, I, I think the exact thing is like, whether or not I, I would throw you off this ship, I don't have an answer, except Naomi wouldn't like it. Exactly. And it's like the music is really creepy and Holden's freaked out. And then he goes, he goes, can you please pass me like, the I don't know, screwdriver? And then he says, thank you. And I'm Jesus. You know, like for He's him, mad. all interaction is the same. It just depends on whatever your gooles are in that moment. So he's like, look, I just I just gave you, you know, the standards of how we're going to move forward from here on out. So you can yeah. take it, do whatever. But I said my piece. Yeah, But it's what also dynamic. It is. But it also comes back to like authority you know if it belongs to who we give it to amos is giving it to naomi but he's also going to be the one who enforces it yeah so i think they honestly did some great character work in this episode i did i know i'm a hater but i this is a great like this is this is like your standard team building episode every show with some Mm -hmm. kind of ensemble cast needs 
like an app where it's just everybody's stuck in the same place and I have to learn how to get along. And the interesting thing about this episode, and you won't realize it until you watch the next few episodes, is that this experience of them uh, putting the ship back together, of fixing the radio, of calling for help, of getting themselves to a safer place, it does bring them together, but it doesn't make them, you know, a family. It just is like one step towards that goal, which is, you know, is the end game. This team that we're seeing is eventually going to become a family. And the interesting part is watching how that happens. So Mm -hmm. when this episode ends, like, yeah, they, they have learned to work together to survive. But the question is like, is that, that's, that was out of necessity. What happens when they don't have to work together? What happens if they're allowed to turn on each other? What, what happens then? What do these characters decide to do? You know, like, it really gives you a lot of space to explore dynamics. Super cool, guys. Super cool. (laughs) But do we have anything left to say about the can't? Um, not really. They're just hanging out and surviving. Living life, riding through the city, having a blast. (laughs) Um, Anyways... Then we can go on ahead and jump to series where we check back in with Miller and we mentioned that we're experiencing the consequences of the Canterbury's explosion because they are an ice hauler, which, you know, ice is water. Just a quick science mm-hmm. lesson for anyone who missed the fourth grade. <laughs> um, and now series is do rationing water because the Canterbury is late for their shipment. Yep. But meanwhile, people are also stealing water because they really didn't have enough in the first place. Miller and Havelock go to investigate the stolen water, confront some teenagers, and we learn that one, uh, not just one, but several of Ceres' gangs have disappeared. Without a trace. The Grigas. The yes. Grigas. And Miller talk, continues I mean, his in, his investigation um, of Julie Mao in, on series. Yes. So there's some, you know, things to talk about. Nina, what were your thoughts? There is. I'm, I'm trying to think of where to start. But um, one thing I mean, that's interesting do we want to start Easter- with Water Means Life? Oh, I was actually, so my point was actually kind of related to that. One thing that's interesting about these first two episodes is that as much as Miller is a contradiction of like, you know, being this corrupt cop, he doesn't care that much, he's willing to work against his own people, he values water and air just as much as anybody else. You know, in the first episode, he um, he beat up that guy for mm-hmm. essentially not replacing the air filters. And getting a little um, girl sick. Yeah, even though at the beginning of that episode, he was fully willing to be paid off. And then in this episode, it's about water. And it's it's this, he has that speech where he's like, you can steal whatever you want, you can do whatever, but once you mess with the water, like, that's a no-go, basically. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a nice reminder that Miller really might not hate, might hate who he is, but he's still that person mm-hmm. at the end of the day. He still he has understands who he is. He yes, exactly. No, that's a really great point. And 
I do think water mean water means life is also an interesting statement in an episode where we see Miller doesn't even get enough water to wash his hair, which I mean he doesn't yeah. have a lot of it. So I don't know what the hell I would be doing in that situation. At least he's hygienic. It's nice to see that he takes care of it. I mean, it is nice to see evidence of it, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But um, we also learned just a little bit more about Julie. And this is also the fun part about missing person mysteries is you have to learn about the missing person basically exclusively through the lens that other people see them through. So episode one, Julie's just this rebellious wild child with a pet cause. But that's because that's what her family says and that's what the police think of her. Episode two, now she's this girl that can handle herself. She's more assertive Mm -hmm. than we may have initially thought and less like this naive girl who just got swept up. Mm -hmm. And... As we see those two images contrast each other, we're also going to see Miller start to build up his own idea of her based on like the little that he knows and things he'll continue to learn. Yeah, that scene of of Miller in in Julie's apartment, I think there's so much there. Um, I have a couple thoughts on it. One of them is that there's this So the big thing that Miller steps into is like he sees the video messages Mm -hmm. that Julie shares with her father, Jules Pierre Mao, who is is basically the owner of this giant corporation. Um, And one of her final messages, because she hates him, is she says, maybe the thing you hate most about me is that I remind you of yourself. Mm. Um, And the way the camera's set up is it kind of focuses on Miller. And I just I just like that line. Um, And I there is this sort of thread between who julie is and who miller is even though we only ever see julie through miller's eyes um but there is this like connecting idea of people who reject the identity that you know they grew up with yeah exactly and and so for miller i think you have brought this up or you or you will bring this up but miller is like really like what would cause someone who mm-hmm. has everything that he wants to give that all up to be who he is right now? Um, and it's it's almost like Julie and Miller are on opposite sides of the spectrum and they want what the other person has. No, which is, I love is, that. Yeah. Because like if the other thing is uh, – No, go ahead. Go, I was moving on to a separate Oh, yeah. Then, like, if we're still pushing Miller as this person who wants to be, like, you know, the upper class that rejects him, then his the time that he spends in Julie's apartment using her water, you know, putting his feet all over her couch, this is his, <laughs> <laughs> this is his opportunity to kind of, like, try out what it's like to live like them. Yeah. Which I think in whatever pleasure that he derives from that, I think he also attaches to Julie because she almost gives him that access. Yeah. You know what else I love? Well, the the other thing I noted about that scene. So you have read the books. Well, you're like most of them. Okay. What what book are you on now? um, I'm stuck on book six for a reason. Which one is that? Book six um, is the book that would immediately follow season five you mean book five i meant the name 
Oh, what it's called. Babylon's Ashes. <laughs> okay. So uh, thank you for that math lesson. So Babylon's Ashes, um, and you intend to read toward the end. I, and I'm putting this on record, mm-hmm. am reading with the series, like with the show. So I have finished book one, which covers season one and then the first half of season two. And so I won't be starting book two, I guess, until we get to season two. Which Um, means, you know, I can't bully her for being like, I want to talk to you about this massive thing that happens five books from now. Yeah, go make other friends. You can do that with somebody else. Oh, God. I'm suffering for the art. You know how hard Um, it is to get somebody to commit to a full series of books that are like 400 pages? People read Game of Thrones or uh, Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, but they're obsessives. I know. They really are. Um, And I don't want to talk to Game of Thrones fans. They're still mad about, you know, what happened in the final season. Well, it's it's a sensitive. It is. It is offensive. But, you know, as someone who didn't watch, you know, I just be sitting there like Miss Juicy while, you know, (laughs) y'all go off about it. So anyway, I say all this because there's a moment that is in the first book that I love that like I feel like is my favorite representation of who Julie is and who we get to know about her so far. And it takes place during this scene, basically. And so what Miller is doing during the scene is reading um, the video messages between Julie and her dad. And in the books, it's uh, through letters. And so uh first julie's mom writes to her then julie's dad writes to her and she writes back and the interesting part about that scene is that she miller gets to see her drafts Mm -hmm. so he gets to see like her first draft and what she gave up but what she was writing anyway and then he gets to see her try again and give up on that version and through that you almost get to see julie's fear and her sadness that her family like isn't accepting who she is because at this point her family is like you're giving up everything to go play belter right um and if you do this we will essentially disown you that's kind of what the i think they say in the books um and you know you kind of it's easy to think of julie as this like spoiled girl who like kind of runs away from from this life she's been given but i think those letters really give a nice perspective of like she's really someone who's just scared and she's so like heartbroken that her family would reject her like that um because you know she probably is that kind of person who believes that the the love that they have is stronger than maybe the the difference in ideology that they have because julie julie's whole thing is that like she rails against her dad her dad is this big corporate owner uh like billionaire and she's like that's bad (laughs) um so what I like about those letters is it shows that vulnerability and then it shows how she like literally her, her mind like ch- going through its thoughts. Mm-hmm. So the first letter that she tries is really like, you know, really kind of nice and trying to like, I don't know, get them to see her side. And then she's like, OK, fine, I will be polite and I'll be curt, whatever. And then the last message is like is angry. Because the the big primary conflict is that they're threatening to sell her ship, the Razorback, which is like her beloved racing ship. You can't take Um, the Razorback. Yeah. And so at the end of it, she's like, well, 
for her, she's like, don't sell it. I can't believe you would sell it. But then her final letter is like, fine, go sell it. I don't care. Mm. And to see her arrive at that rage was like one of my favorite things reading in that book. And the show kind of uh, really just shows the last message, which is her saying, like, fine, sell it. I don't care. But I think what makes it such an interesting scene is watching her arrive at that uh, decision. And it really, I think, makes the case where the show kind of makes Julie this kind of inscrutable, not inscrutable, this black box where we we're spending so much time talking about her and she doesn't get the opportunity all that much to speak for herself where the book you know before the end gives you a more textured view of not only what people think of Julie but how Julie saw herself and how you know her thought process like in that scene you described so that's nice um, do we um, have- any other thoughts about no we're <laughs> asking each other the same question exactly I mean because I mean I have a few more points like to yeah go on I don't I don't think I have anything else um I th- this always really jarring when like greenery appears in this show and it reminds you just how sterile everything is mm-hmm. and on series it has this ne- it has a necessary function of helping to recycle the air. But the aesthetic function is clearly what is prioritized for the officials that we see. And it's clearly not for the benefit of the belters who live on series because they're not even allowed into that area. And we also learn that series has a governor who is appointed by the UN. So once again, it just brings home the point that there, like, no one in charge is invested in what's good for the actual citizens of series. Yeah. Oh, that scene is so frustrating with the with the I guess the governor's assistant maybe, mm-hmm. where he's like, it's because it's like it's I'm almost like embarrassed for Havelock because I'm like, you know, nothing you're gonna say is gonna get across to this man. Yep. And at the same time, Havelock, Havelock has a point. Maybe if um, everyone in series had this view, they'd respect you more. Yeah, and the guy was like, I can't believe this. And he's like, looking idiot. at him with such disdain. Yeah, and it's so frustrating because it's like, I agree with Havelock, but I, I, I have seen this kind of dynamic play out where I can under, not understand, but I know why his the guy opposite him is like, so disdainful of him Mm -hmm. and it's frustrating to know why because he just doesn't even take that concept seriously that everybody you know deserves to have that kind of access because he really doesn't believe they don't and like even in that same scene we've emphasized that series is the most like populated area of belters Mm -hmm. he says criminals on series tend to be belters and he says it with, you know, a real sense of conviction. And you're sitting here like, I mean, yeah, because most of the people that live here are belters. <laughs> like, yeah. And most of the belters are poor and don't have water and don't have air. So what else do you expect them to do besides go get it for themselves? I mean, die. Yeah. On that so, note. It's a great <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do we want what was your ch- last point? 
My last oh, point. You oh, one? yeah. You really you feel like when Miller and Havelock stopped those teenagers from stealing water, mm-hmm. you really feel the loss of all that water when it spills. <sighs> it's like, like it's honestly a stomach sinking moment because by this point they've really like hammered into you why water and air are so valuable. So to see all of that just spilled, even though it was unfiltered, just wasted like that is kind of depressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that's that. Shall we move on to Earth? Yeah, I mean, once again, not too much happens on Earth. Um, Aaron Wright, who is the second most powerful person in the UN, technically Mm -hmm. Avasarala's boss, he tells her that she's going to have to stop gravity torturing this man, the belter, (laughs) for 20 hours. That's how long she had him in there. Good Lord. And he tells him you need to cheat. He tells her to put the belter into a water tank, which is supposed to try and simulate the effects of space so there's less stress on his body, which is a fun detail. Mm-hmm. They yeah. have their. And that scene. No, go ahead. I was just to say that scene that you're about to jump into is just so creepy. Yeah, it's like the rasp in his voice because he has this ma- oxygen mask on. Yeah. I mean, I think it really gets down. And then he's one of the few belters that we see who like matches the description in the books with the very, very long, skinny limbs and body. Mm-hmm. So, and then putting him in this water tank and having the mask on him and how distorted his voice sounds, it really serves as an example like of how Earthers view belters as these kind really of grotesque... Oh, like barely humanoid creatures. Mm-hmm. So visually, it's very striking. And then the yeah. subtext of it is, I mean, very clear. Yes. Uh, the dialogue. There's uh, one. You, I mean, you've pointed out this out to me before, but there's there's one part of the dialogue. Yeah, please um, talk about it. You know, I, well, I have to preserve my voice. <laughs> Um, so, so the reason that Avasarala is, is basically interrogating this belter is that she believes he's part of the OPA, the Outer Planets Alliance, which they view as a terrorist group. It's depending on who you are, you either see it as a terrorist group or, uh, liberation group or at least someone who's at least Um, fighting for your rights in some way. Yes. And so she's interrogating this guy because she believes he's part of it and she believes that he was transporting Martian weapons, I think? Something like that? Um, I want to say it was planned. No, it, you're right. Um, actually, this is an important point. She believes that the OPA is trying to obtain stealth weapons in order to form an alliance with Mars. If yes, nothing else, exactly. if nothing else, this is something you need to retain for down the line. <laughs> yeah. Um... So she's interrogating him for that reason, and Avasarala in this episode, I think, gets we get more of a sense of like what she believes in. Um, and so for her, she's so singularly focused on the good of of the system, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so one part of the dialogue that stuck out to me was when she talks about this this act that this man may have partaken in and she says you know this could destroy the balance of the system and the man says that you mean the balance between earth and mars um and abasarala doesn't really have a reaction to that because it's pretty clear abasarala sees uh what am I thinking? Abasarala sees uh, people who matter mm-hmm. as those who she can interact with, as yep. those who she can see. So the so the ones who already have value, who are valuable. So and I, I won't spoil the iconic phrase that will come later, but the people on Earth are who she values. The people on Mars are people she may not value but she respects in some sense she recognizes Um, that they like have rights in some way yeah maybe she doesn't respect them but she still has to value she sees them as human beings at the very least yes whereas with the belters she sees them as as like ill-tempered children and property um yes and i think that's the the that gives a pretty good picture of then as a result what are the policies she pursues what are the what are the actions she will do to ensure the benefit of the system so when the belter says that it's like a pretty good summation she's not interested in what happens to the belt you know if they um are affected by the fallout it is what it is but if earth is affected by what's happening or if earth and mars I think this is the episode where she talks about a cold war between Earth and Mars. If that cold war changes into a hot war, uh, then that's a problem for her. Yep. And so I I liked that. And then the other line I I liked, which is the one you've pointed out to me, is that um, the Belter talks about Earth and he says that this is the planet that bore my, like my great, great grandmother. Mm -hmm. And, and, Earth has created a race of exiles out in space who have no homes to return to. And then he ends on that whole quote on a question, shall this go unanswered? Ooh, it's a great monologue. It's so good. That actor was great. I don't know who's the actor. Yeah. As you're saying, um, they created a race of of exiles who have no homes to return to. It reminds me, um, I'll keep it spoiler free, but it does remind me of a quote in season three from a very, very popular speech um, by somebody who talks about the opposite of that. So if this quote is about Belters not having a home, the upcoming one is about Belters making their own home. Exactly. And I'll leave it at that because when we get there, I'll do the deep dive. (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm like vibrating right now. <laughs> right. Um, in the meantime, I do want to note that, I mean, his whole speech, if we call it that, mm-hmm. is really just about the way that like Bel- the way that Belter's lives have been shaped is by violence. Mm-hmm. And his point is that somehow violence is only bad when it's coming from an oppressed group in reaction to the ones that have put them in this position and hold power over them. Oh, yes, you're right, you're right. So, I mean, it's... Avasarala doesn't get many scenes, especially in the first half of the season, but they do make sure to, like, pack a punch with them, especially when we see this belter at the end of the episode make a statement by killing himself. 
when they're yeah. flying him out. I get were they taking him to Luna? Yeah, mm-hmm. to do like more interrogation. Right. Um, this is the scene also where she's like, What gives you the right to to be violent or something? Or like have you earned that violence, mm-hmm. right? She says, wait, I actually had this quote somewhere. Yes. The OPA demands legitimacy through violence. They haven't earned it any other way. Yeah. Which, I mean, ditto. (laughs) Yeah. That's all I got to say about that. And I think that, you know, wraps up our main thoughts. Yeah. Wow. Look at us being on time. You know, I'm proud of us. Um, in future so, uh, episodes, no, go ahead. No, I was gonna go to the next point. Oh yeah, then I was just gonna say, like in future episodes, we it might be structured a little differently. Just you know, bear with us because we're giving you great content. So, <laughs> um, and please take it in a tone of self-deprecation. <laughs> but no, only I'm like I'm on half. I'm fully serious. This is the my greatest output of, of this year. Um, there were a couple we've we've in general like we like to highlight quotes or moments or um, score tracking, which I'm responsible for. But were there any quotes or lingering thoughts about the two episodes as a whole that you wanted to talk about? Wow, I want to thank you for giving me the stage to do this. Oh. Boy. <laughs> Um, I do have thoughts. My first thought, which was actually one of my first thoughts about the show, was when Holden sees that rat on the Canterbury, I was so disgusted. Because imagine <laughs> you go all the way out to space and you are still, you know, walking around and boom, there's a rat. How would a rat even get like how That's did it my survive? Question. That? How did it how does it even survive? It doesn't make sense. Like I know it's supposed to tell us, you know, this is an old ship, or maybe it signifies something about life sustaining itself, blah 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 blah. I don't care. I would have spaced that fucking rat. <laughs> um additionally, I thought it was funny when Holden asks um, Naomi something about the ship that they're going to search. And Naomi goes, well, it's a big, it has a big hole in the side after. (laughs) What's that? It looks like a big hole in the side. That's a book quote, right? I am not positive. I read the book like a year ago and I've been like vaguely reading along as we do these episodes. I'm pretty sure that's from the books because I, I remember laughing like multiple times. <laughs> um, we also see Miller with a bird for the first time. Please, you know, pay yes. attention because there will be additional bird imagery throughout the season. Yes. Um, Keeps that's the it. rain off my head is one of my favorite quotes. Um, I there is this scene when they're on the scapulae, we get these really cramped and claustrophobic shots inside yeah. of Holden and Amos's helmets, and it really feels oh, like I hate those shots. <laughs> like they're meant to they're be so uncomfortable, uncomfortable, you know. And it really emphasizes yeah. like the discomfort of space. Yeah, I love that. You are right. Um, do you have any? 
I mean, I have a couple more, but I don't want to monopolize the moment. I think I uh, ran through all my quotes already. Okay. Then I do have some notebook notes. Um, in the book, Holden thinks about like how if he he's assuming that Mars blew up the camp, and Holden has a background in the military, and he thinks about it and says. If he had been ordered to blow up the camp, he never would have considered following that order. And then he mm. like goes through several things that he would have done instead, all of which would have been disobeying orders. Yeah. And I think it tells us a lot about Holden. But we will also kind of learn in the future that he's already done something similar to that. So he has the actual experience to back himself up when he says, I would never do that. Yeah, you've just reminded me um, of a character we're going to meet very, very soon. And I'm like getting excited about that character. Um, I love saying soon because I feel like every time we're going to talk through this season, we're going to be like, oh, I'm so excited for something that happens like two seasons from now. Exactly. So this is like the one time you get to be like in two episodes, something fun happens. Cannot wait. Um, Another book moment. And this is not from book one. I think it's from book three. When Holden mm-hmm. is recording his Remember the Can't transmission at the end of episode two, Amos asks Naomi whether or not he should kill Holden. And he says it in like the, mm-hmm. the same very calm tone that we talked about earlier <laughs> when he first initially wow. threatened to kill Holden. And Wes Chatham makes this choice to underplay Amos. And it's such a good moment. And it relates back to this scene in book three where Holden is observing Amos and he says, an angry Amos was not nearly as dangerous as a cold Amos. So it's just Ooh. fun to see that book motivation jumping out of an actor's choices, you know? Yeah. Uh, Amos is so scary sometimes. <laughs> but he's on our side, so it's okay. You know? Um, we've talked about the difference between like Miller or Miller's struggle with his identity So there is a scene early in book one as people are reacting to Holden's transmission. And he says, the difference was subtle, but it was deep. It made him want to stand taller and to show with his body that he was a belter, that he belonged there. It made him want to win people's good opinion back or let a bunch of guys passing out virtual reality propaganda with a warning, maybe. So like he, there are moments where he's genuinely torn between his job and his actual identity. Yeah, and I that's one of the ones that illustrates it. And Havelock and Arthur at some point in book one says, "I just want to go someplace with a sky, even if you look at it through domes." Oof. And that's something we'll most definitely come back to. But in general, I just love the theme of people constantly wishing for this connection with, like, nature. Yeah. Any more book thoughts? Um, That, you know, sums them up for now. Fancy. Um, I have one last. Well, I have a couple more things I'd like to talk about. I thought we would talk about the music in this show. Please do. Um, Nina has to handle this section because every time I'm like, it's this track that's playing. She's got to be like, no, sweetie. (laughs) You're close, but you're wrong. 
first of all, shout out to Clinton Shorter, who is the, the mastermind behind the soundtrack of this show and still is um, going into season five. Oh, I love saying season five. Um, I, what we're, what we plan to do with every episode is the, so the show has released an official soundtrack um, and we thought it would be nice to try and match up some of the tracks with where they play in the episodes. So for these two episodes, I have a couple um, written down. Uh, the first is obviously the theme song, um, which is, uh, I don't know if we want to go into the lyrics, but um, it's it's basically sung by this woman in Norwegian, Lisbeth Scott. Um, and I believe when she wrote it, excuse me, I believe when she wrote it, it was sort of an approximate approximation of Norwegian. And so she doesn't, I don't think she speaks Norwegian herself, but it was more like using the language to like cobble together her own meaning. Um, and as a result, it's, uh, it's basically these lyrics about light and darkness um, and, and the push and pull between that. And that's sort of like the long short of it. And I think that's, you know, just like the, the quote by XO, why couldn't we have brought more light? I think it's a very, it, it's, it's like the highest level of, of abstractness of like what this show is about of light and dark and how we move in between those two. Mm-hmm. So that's the first track. Um, the second is kind of plays immediately after um, when we open on to, to Julie Mao. Well, I don't think we've said her full name until now. We have but, not, um, at least not in the context of, you know, her intro. Yeah. So, so Julie Mao, when the scene opens up on her and that little like Star Wars card in the beginning explaining the world of the Expanse, um, this track called Hostage plays. Um, and there's this very familiar uh, sequence that that plays. And I feel like I should explain it because last time I talked about this, you called me out. But this. <laughs> so the hostage, what you'll hear is something you'll hear in other tracks, too. And it's this four note arpeggio. What is an arpeggio? Yes, yeah? that is well, exactly I- what happened <laughs> because she kept using arpeggio. And I was like, I was nodding. And there came a point I was like, girl, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Well, based on my very um, deep, uh, rich research in high school, in my orchestra. Uh, oh, what instrument did you play? <laughs> uh, viola. Oh, that's so cute. Okay, keep going. All right. <laughs> um, so from what I learned then, uh, an arpeggio is essentially, uh, it's, like a, it's like a roller coaster. So it's four, so in this case, it's four notes. Um, it goes up and then it goes down and then it goes back up to the same high note and then it goes back down to the same low note. Um, a really good example of this is if you've ever watched The Flash, the theme song of The Flash does this. Um, I think in, you'll I don't know. Once you know what it is, you'll hear it a lot. I, I can't think of any other like immediate examples. But if you listen to Hostage, you'll hear it. And it's a very common sequence. I mean, you didn't play like Beethoven in orchestra or anything? Girls, if I remember what I played in high school. <laughs> you think this, uh, you think this woman's 40 years old. As if uh, that thing is collecting dust. I, I don't remember anything. I barely practiced anyway. I was not a, <laughs> I was not a, the most dedicated student. But we're not here to evaluate our past. Um, the point is, if you hear it, 
you'll understand what I'm talking about, where it starts low and, and goes to a high note and then comes back to that same low note. So listen to the track and you'll hear that particular sequence a lot throughout the show and particularly in season one. So that's Hostage. Um, the next track is called Signal and it plays when Holden is on the Canterbury in episode one and he hears the distress call um, from Julie Mao. Um, there are a few other tracks that play during these episodes that don't have an official like track on the soundtrack and so i'm just going to ignore them but if you watch the episode you'll pick up on them so that makes my job easier um the next one is called well walla and unsurprisingly part of it plays when uh we first meet miller and the the gaunt belter calls him a well walla the second half of that song plays uh, closer to the end of the episode when Miller goes home and he meets that little girl and she has like the bird in her hand. Um, and then the final track in episode one is called Gone and it is predictably when Holden admits that the crew of the Canterbury is gone. So it's very sad. And that's the first half because this takes us to the next episode, um, episode two. The first half of Gone plays at the end of the first episode the second half of gone so like when the can't is gone yes that's the hard-hitting analysis you people come here for so in the next in the second episode when it opens when it opens it's we pick up where we left off and the whole conflict is that there's like a debris field from the ship exploding which is is and and we won't get into this too much in in this podcast but like the realism of the show is always really interesting. And so the fact that like a ship blows up and then the next immediate worry is that like the crew might get destroyed by that ship and its debris um, is just a nice touch and, and really like lets you understand like the stakes in this kind of world. Um, so then the second half of Gone plays while that is happening. And so it's very frantic, blah, blah, blah. There's only one other track in this episode and it's called Boarded, and it's plays at the end of the episode um, when the, the Martian ship, the Donager, uh, is demanding to board Holden's ship and to take them prisoner. And this show, for whatever reason, gets a lot of Game of Thrones comparisons. And this track is the only one that I'm like, I could see it because it sounds very Game of Thronesy. It does. And that's it. Thank you, Nina. Or, you know, politely explaining the music tracks that I always mix up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One thing we talked about, sorry, I realize I'm going over my allotted time. Uh, We uh, speak. (laughs) We wanted to. One thing about this show is that it's very complicated in the first season and there's so many details that you don't know what you're supposed to pay attention to. So I think we wanted to give a quick summary at the end of every episode of just like what's going on and like what you should be paying attention to, especially for new viewers. Um, Did you have any more thoughts you wanted to get to before we do that? No, ma'am. Take us home. All right. I'm ready for part three of my monologue. So what we know so far at the end of episodes one and two is that Julie Mao was held hostage on some ship and... On the back of her suit was uh, the Scopuli. Uh, Meanwhile, that same ship called the Scopuli, uh, there was a distress beacon that was planted to lure Holden and his crew. Um, 
But somehow Julie's distress call also got mixed up in that. And like, whatever, I'll make a revelation later about it. I know that it's a little confusing. But the point is that Julie's trapped on a ship that's not the Scopuli. She was part of the Scopuli, allegedly. The Scopuli had a distress beacon that was meant to lure Holden and his ship. Julie's message and the Scopuli's beacon got sent to Holden. All we know about the Scopuli is that before someone planted this distress call, um, something happened that killed a lot of people. Um, But somebody had to open all the doors and turn off the reactor and essentially assure that everyone on board would be dead. In the meantime, uh, we also learn, along with Julie, is that she went on the Scopuli from Ceres Station. So this is what Miller finds out at the end of the most recent episode. So Julie was on the Scopuli. She went from Ceres Station. She was going somewhere. We don't know where. Something happened. She was held hostage. In the meantime, um, we also learned that the distress beacon on the Scopuli was Martian marine technology, which is pretty high government level conspiracy theory. Uh, So we will wait to see what happens with that information, especially now that Holden has broadcasted it across the universe. Somehow, Um, some way. Some way, which makes us think that a the Martians were the ones who blew up the Canterbury um, because the ship that blew them up was Martian. Um, at the same time, we have this little play by play between Christian Avasarala and the, o- the OPA member that she was interrogating, where she said that he was caught smuggling smel- stealth tech, uh, Martian stealth tech, I think. Um, and so all this stuff about Martian stealth technology and could it be behind uh, blowing up these ships? Could the OPA be involved in how these ships are being blown up? And what was Julie doing on the Scopuli and where was she going? I think are the main points you want to think about by the end of this. The final thing that is the most important thing is that the Grigas have disappeared from Ceres Station and we don't know where they have went, but they have went somewhere. This will be on the exam. (laughs) And that's it. And that's it. You know, if you made it this far, thank you. If you didn't make it this far, I'm sorry that you like lack taste. <laughs> we will see you again for episode three. Maybe next and four. week. And four. Maybe next week. I mean, whenever we get it to you, that's when you'll see it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Have a great night. Bye. Get home safe. Bye.